It's time for Valley Writers Read, a production of Valley Public Radio featuring the talents of writers from Central California. Here's the host of our program, Franz Weinschenk. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read. Tonight, two different but really interesting short stories. The first by Terry Phillips. Yes, he's the same fellow who's featured on a talk show right here on this station called Quality of Life. It's all about hair, a subject I know very little about, since, as you probably guessed by now, I have very little of it. Terry calls his story Cortini's Quandary. And so, without any further ado, here is Terry Phillips to read it for us. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime girl. Send me a kiss by Cortini's Quandary. I am going bald, he said. Actually, that wasn't true. Cortini wasn't going anywhere. It was his hair that was going. On this all-too-hot Friday afternoon, he had left the office early in anticipation of a long holiday weekend. The whole gang from Bauman Bates was planning a river party and had cut out shortly after 3 p.m. Cortini really wasn't in the mood. Ever since Regina, in Human Resources, had made that remark about his sparse hair, he had taken a more serious interest in his appearance. The younger woman later claimed that she had meant it as a compliment. But how was, you're keeping a trim on top, I see, supposed to be complimentary? Whatever, she wasn't his type anyway. Still, Cortini found himself taking longer to get dressed, stiffening his posture, and sucking in that gut when he was around others, particularly around women. Mostly, Regina. His ex-wife had been an excellent cook and prepared irresistible meals. She always encouraged him to eat more. That was his explanation for the love handles. But these days, he was mostly doing his own cooking. He started working out in a gym, intending to go three days a week, and eventually going in... Exactly, three times. Still, some excess weight had dropped off, along with the hair. Now, sitting in his little red sports car at the intersection of Shaw and Blackstone, waiting for the traffic light to turn green, Cortini looked closer at his reflection in the rearview mirror. Where had it all gone, he wondered. As a senior account manager, he was doing well enough, although his corporate ladder-climbing days were pretty much over. But more to the point, it was his youth that was abandoning him. Going, going, nearly gone. This was further evidenced by a recent birthday pushing Cortini firmly past any pretense of hip, through the generation gap, decidedly into middle age and beyond. How long has this been going on, he tried to remember. Five years? Six? (laughs) Who was he kidding? The disappearing act had begun decades ago. Throughout his childhood in Fresno, Cortini, 
Even then, nobody called him by his first name. Cortini enjoyed chunky, dark chocolate curls, consistent with his Mediterranean roots. One aunt was forever fondling those ringlets. He hated that. He also hated getting his hair cut. His very first trip to Jackson the Barber was a notoriously unhappy experience. An entourage of relatives came along for that momentous occasion. Years later, family lore detailed how Cortini would not stop squirming. No amount of coaxing could get him to sit still in the chair. Perhaps it was the biblical story of Samson that had traumatized him. Or maybe it was all those dead deerheads mounted on the barbershop walls. No matter. From that day forward, he hated having his hair cut. Or even touched. Like most kids, Cortini disliked baths. But it was shampoo that bothered him the most. What's worse, it never seemed to rinse out completely. It bothered his eyes and left an oily film for a long time afterwards. His bushy mane was also resistant to all manners of brushing or grooming. He recalled one summer at Holmes' playground being teased by friends for breaking half a dozen teeth on a comb because his hair was so snarled. Flash forward to the early teen years. The summer of love's flower-power fashions never made it to the Central Valley. No surprise, then, that Cortini's over-the-ears style caused him to stand out among his crew-cut classmates. One didn't need shoulder-length locks to be called a hippie in Fresno during the 1960s. The occasional jabs became daily mockery. Get a job. Wear a dress. Go back to San Francisco. These were not suggestions of homosexuality. They were merely intended to draw a line between us and them in an era of great national divisiveness. But rather than be defeated by them, Cortini stubbornly embraced the accusations of being different. He stopped making any effort at all to control his hair, cultivating the wild, wind-blown look instead. On the cafeteria jukebox at lunchtime, he always punched up two songs and sang along at full voice. The first was number B5, Hair by the Cow Cells. Gimme a head with hair, long, beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, streaming, flaxen, waxen. Streaming, flaxen, waxen, gimme down to there, shoulder length longer, here, baby, there, mama, everywhere, And the other was number L13, Walk Right In by the Rooftop Singers. His favorite chorus, of course, was Walk Right In, Sit Right Down, Baby Let Your Hair Hang Down. Walk right in, sit right down, baby let your hair hang down. Walk right in, sit right down, baby let your hair hang down. Week after week, as the music played on, he let his hair get longer and came to resemble one of the Fab Four. Not wishing to live with a beetle, Mom and Dad finally intervened. Since Cortini would be wanting a car by the summer, and since that necessitated a job to buy gas, his parents persuaded him to gradually shorten the mop top to a reasonable, employable length. Following his junior year of high school, Cortini worked part-time at Pep Boys. The money proved more desirable than his expression of nonconformity, and his hair returned to its previous collar length. In the midst of a particularly harsh argument, 
the boy's older, short-haired brother, reminded him that baldness ran in the family. All their male relatives were early baldies, and he should expect to part with his sooner rather than later. Alas, Cortini's plentiful supply of superior stock was not to last long. The first clues came before his teenage years ended. His boss, Harry Green, referred to the youngster as kid, even though they were only five years apart in age. One day, as Cortini bent over to pick up a box of brake shoes, Green noticed some scalp just beginning to peek through at the top and feigned shock. Look at that, Green gasped. I guess you're not a kid anymore, he kidded. Green had been all too right. The sparseness of hair in the rear view was dismaying. Cortini had to admit to paying closer attention of late to late-night TV ads hawking hair replacement surgery. He imagined himself looking ten years younger again. No, to be honest, it would be more like thirty years younger, particularly if the grays were nearly black, as before. Despite the televised testimonials, a little research later revealed that those operations were extremely expensive, not to mention quite dangerous. Luckily, it never got to that point. My God, thought Cortini, this is terrible. He tentatively brushed a hand through his thinning thatch. The salt and pepper strands were combed back, not over, and the little dab of gel was not enough to hold the quaff in place. Every strand had a mind of its own, and the collection was chaotic. Cortini used to call his hairline receding, but now the front was far too wide for that description to be true. He totally dismissed the notion of a toupee. Weaves were also out of the question. He could not conceive of the extreme embarrassment that would inevitably go with losing any such false covering. And the spray paint solutions sold on infomercials? Who were they trying to fool? He'd be better off putting a paper bag over his head. Hearsuit reveries were interrupted by a honking horn. The light had turned green for nearly three whole seconds. Some idiot behind him with hair-trigger impatience fired off an audible warning shot. Keep your shorts on, Cortini muttered. He tossed back a nasty snarl and hit the gas. Zipping past ponytailed bikers and disheveled, shaded drivers in SUVs. He evil-eyed blonde and brunette pedestrians, showing off their unshorn shags. He overtook the overgrown onlookers and cursed the day a stylist first set shears upon those dreaded locks. Cortini screeched to a stop at the corner gas station. Three fifty for unleaded? It made his hair stand on end. Well, at least he still had enough for that to happen. After pumping half a tank, he went inside to collect his change for a twenty, like there might be change. The clerk sported a full beard and mustache. Mercifully, his baseball cap hid equally dense tresses underneath. When Cortini got home, he plopped down in his favorite recliner, staring at the blank TV screen. He fiddled with the remote control, nervously counting the buttons. One, two, three, four. He always added the columns and rows of plastic bumps, every time it came out to twenty-eight. Silently chastising himself for this mindless quirk, he hit the slightly larger red one and switched on the power. Whoosh! Some indistinct sounds preceded the picture. Six seconds later, the 27-inch display pixelated to life with images Cortini did not want to see. There they were, though, romping along the beach, looking back over their shoulders directly at him. They smiled. They laughed. 
they shook their heads and taunted him. With all that luscious, lustrous, some might even say licentious, hair. He was about to change channels when his attention was drawn to a suddenly pleasant pressure on his lap. Molly stared up at him, nuzzling her affection, as if to say, "'You're hairy enough for me, big boy.' Cortini appreciated this. She loved him as much as any female ever had. He reached down and stroked her soft, furry head. The gray tabby cat always knew how to cheer him up. All she needed to do was purr. But feline fondness could not revitalize those fallow follicles. Despite optimistic promises, no pills or potions managed to regrow the crop which once adorned his head. Cortini had tried them all, Propecia, Minoxidil, organic root stimulators. Nothing worked. At best, there was a bit of temporary little fuzz, which actually, ironically, seemed to draw more attention to the bald spot. At worst, he had even less hair than before the treatment. Everybody had advice for him. Cut it short, grow it long, get a perm, wear a hat. The next day in the early afternoon, his best friend and drinking buddy Frank came by for lunch. The two often joked about their mutual hair loss, although Cortini always felt a little guilty because Frank had less growing on his skull than the average ostrich egg. They'd been sitting on the patio drinking beer when the visitor had a sudden suggestion. "'You want to know what I think?' he asked. "'Go all the way.' Frank was from Fowler and famous for his fun-loving frivolity, but he spoke with such authority, no hint of humor. Cortini was blown away. "'Are you talking about shaving my head?' His friend nodded. "'Do that and I guarantee nobody will talk about your bald spot,' he drawled. "'Frank!' replied Cortini, after regaining his power of speech. People are going to talk about me like I'm crazy. He paused long enough to tossle what was left of his hair. Besides, I'm not sure I have the right shape for it. Anyway, I'd have to be drunk off my keister to pull a stunt like that. Frank smiled broadly. Now you're talking my lingo. He stood up. You got any scotch? When the sun set, there wasn't an unopened bottle of alcohol left in the house. The metaphoric morgue of dead soldiers had contained everything from small beer to pure Kentucky bourbon. The two men were well beyond the legal limit to drive. Luckily, they were also too drunk to find their car keys. Unfortunately, Frank was not too drunk to find Cortini's electric shaver. When he staggered back from the bathroom, he saw his friend, sprawled over the recliner, arms and legs akimbo, eyelids at half-mast, and chin bobbing like a rubber duck in the tub. The only creature with sense enough to split the scene was Molly. She scrambled away the moment Frank clicked on the cordless shick. A cacophonous buzzing rattled Cortini's brain, but his body was too anesthetized to move. What, what, was all he could mumble. Hold still, buddy, said Frank. He teetered this way and that. I'm gonna give you... But Cortini heard nothing. The combination of noise and intoxication drowned out Frank's incoherent words. All he saw was a blur of blades moving toward his head. It took less than ten minutes for the shearing to stop. Clumps of hair littered the parquet floors. After several tries, Frank managed to switch off the shaver. He swayed slowly and surveyed his handiwork. 
as proud as any artist might be of a masterpiece. But there was one minor difference. This opus belonged in a gallery of horrors. Between too much booze in Frank and not enough sharpness in the Schick, the amateur hairdresser had managed to leave a bloody, splotchy mess on Cortini's scalp. It now resembled the backside of a mangy monkey. By morning, Frank had regained sobriety and gone home. When Cortini finally awoke, his first destination was the toilet. Discretion forbids specificity. Suffice to say that he completely relieved himself of the previous day's excesses. While washing up, the newly cropped customer had occasion to look at the mirror above the sink. His glance turned into a gaze and a full-out gawk. Then he did that thing one only sees in the movies. Cortini pointed, open-mouthed, at his reflection. As if in a dream, his hands moved hesitantly away from the figure in the glass toward his own tangible noggin. The moment his fingers made contact with the flesh, they jerked away. He tried twice more to touch himself before finally giving up. At last, summoning up every last watt of energy, he took a deep breath and cried out, Frank! Two seconds later, he repeated the yell. This time it was loud and long enough to drive Molly to the farthest point in the house. This is one of those good news, bad news moments. The good news is that hair tends to grow back. Now for the bad news. The only way for Cortini to get rid of his pal's prank was to shave off the rest of his hair. The worst news is that Cortini decided to do the deed alone. This challenge posed a number of questions. At the top of his list was which technique to use. After last night's brush with stupidity, his cordless shick had a dead battery and dull blade. Shaving himself with a straight edge was not open to consideration. Far too dangerous, he reasoned. That same argument even applied to a safety razor. Scissors were too slow and imprecise. So he settled on the worst choice of all. Cortini grabbed a hat and headed to the nearest drugstore. The only depilatory creams he could find were for women. But, he concluded, hair is hair. The product's front label claimed that this cream would completely remove unwanted hair. Unfortunately, he was too hungover to read the back side of the bottle. Irritation or allergic reaction may occur, it warned. Before using, apply a small test amount and wait 24 to 48 hours. Do not use on broken, irritated, or inflamed skin. And in larger, bolder letters, it commanded, Do not use on head or face. In retrospect, Cortini was not sure what bothered him most. The burning sensation, which seemed to last for weeks, or the lifetime embarrassment of dialing 911 and being driven by ambulance to the emergency room at St. Agnes Hospital. Don't worry about it, the paramedic kept insisting. We've seen a lot worse than this. It was the same thing auto mechanics usually meant when reassuring a customer the repair bill wasn't that much, or what waiters in a Thai restaurant would always tell him, oh, the chicken curry isn't that spicy. The rash wasn't that bad. The attending physician had a different opinion. 
The sodium hydroxide had caused second-degree burns, which not only hurt like hell, but could have caused some serious scarring. After the cocktail of painkillers had kicked in, Cortini was able to comprehend the doctor's diagnosis. Mr. Cortini, you're a lucky man. The damage to your scalp was limited to a small area at the top. But I'm sorry to tell you that we had to shave off all your hair, to be sure. While Cortini waited to be discharged, he imagined going into the office on Monday with a mummy-like bandage wrapped around his entire head. It's nothing, he would say. I just mutilated myself over the weekend. Don't worry, I'll probably be scarred for life. No big deal, really. Not that bad. The medicated creams and pain pills helped him heal fast. The bandage came off in less than a week, and the rash was quickly covered by new growth. A few months later, Cortini was surprised to see that his hair was approximately the same as before. Frank from Fowler finally remembered what he had done in that drunken stupor. His profuse apologies drew complete forgiveness. Cortini couldn't stay angry at his best friend. As time passed, he tried to find some wisdom in the entire experience. He found himself dropping little hair puns into his conversation, referring to his hair-raising experience or criticizing some hair-brained idea, just for laughs. Cortini also learned that his co-worker Regina's remark about his hair was indeed a compliment. What's more, it turned out that she was his type, more than he had allowed himself to believe. The two started dating. Over lots of lunches and dozens of dinners, they turned into an item. Hair turned into a frequent topic of conversation. They talked about famous men who had little or no hair. Patrick Stewart, Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, Sean Connery, James Bond, for crying out loud. They're all bald and sexy, she assured him. On the other hand, a lot of villains were bald, too, like Superman's archenemy Lex Luthor. In the end, Cortini decided to forget about the image and concentrate on reality. He was neither an action figure movie star nor an evil fiend bent on taking over the world. No, he was just an aging account manager trying to hold on to the last strands of his youth. Since you were a little bitty boy sitting in a booster chair Or you might look like Larry Moe or Curly if a stranger cuts your hair That was Terry Phillips reading his story, Cortini's Quandary. And so what did we learn? Well, that if you're a man, it's probably better to just accept losing your hair gracefully. But if you fight it like Cortini did you'll almost certainly just embarrass yourself and make things worse than they already are. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Terry Phillips is the host of a very popular program on this very station called Quality of Life. Our second story tonight tells us about what's new on the tennis scene over at Fresno's Roding Park. It's written by a longtime tennis aficionado, John Gruberg taken from his book, The Shopping Cart Blues, and the stories entitled Number One Woman. And here to read it for us is Jay Parks. Number One Woman Hammer had just flown to a tournament in Hawaii. 
where I envisioned him hanging out on the sunny beach with skimpily clad hula girls. But I was stuck in Berkeley, where the weather was gray and drizzly. Even when it wasn't raining, it was dark and gloomy. So when Carol William called, I was primed for action, anything, and the idea that it would be accompanied by sunshine really got my juices flowing. Carol William, a Fresno teaching pro, was an old friend and a feared player in his day. Apparently, he had put together a doubles tournament for local teaching pros, and he needed one more guy, so he gave me a call. It was a Sunday round robin with a little prize money, thanks to a local sports surgery center. Berkeley was due for more rain on the weekend, but it looked clear for Fresno, so I said yes. Carol William had been a teaching pro at Fresno's Roding Park for as long as I could remember. He and an old-timer named Bob were always out there. Old Bob was doing mostly group lessons with little kids, and Carol William had the privates and the more developed youngsters who were tournament-bound. Of course, it wasn't always like that. When old Bob was younger, he too had energy for one-on-one -on -one sessions with serious juniors. But then he slowed down, and Carol William was there to take up the slack. That was the nice thing about a free public facility like Roding Park. If nobody meddled with it, a first-class instruction program would evolve on its own, whereas if the city tried to force a program on the players, a lot would be lost, not just in quality, but in the sense of brotherhood that was holding the place together. Such an intrusion would likely end up in court rental fees, and then it would be over. The drop-in mentality of the place would disappear, and instead of being active, the courts would become a concrete wasteland except for certain times of the day when people with fancy clothes pranced around on them. Because it was near Highway 99, Roding Park was the perfect site for a traveling tennis player. With 15 courts and plenty of shade trees, there were always players hanging out, even in the blazing heat of a Fresno summer. On the way to L.A., Hammer and I would drop in, and then on the way back we'd stop there too. It was a great way of breaking up the monotony of driving, We'd say hi to Carol William and old Bob. Then we'd sit in the shade of a tall evergreen and shoot the breeze. Maybe we'd hit some balls if we felt like it. Even if it was the dead of night and nobody was there, we'd hop out at Roding Park and stretch around for a while before climbing back into the old dart and getting mesmerized by the white line in the middle of Highway 99. But now it was winter, and the air in Fresno was crisp and sunny. As I pulled off the freeway onto Olive Avenue, things began to look distinctly familiar, especially the tall trees of Roding Park. I hadn't been to the park in a few years and recalled now its sprawling golf course-like lawns. My senses sharpened as I drove onto the area where pairs of tennis courts were laid out among tall-reaching evergreens and great soothing sections of grass. I could see the place hadn't changed much, and that judging from the number of players hanging around, there was still no fee to play. As I drove around the bend to the far courts, I spotted the ever-bronzed Carol William leaning against a shopping cart full of tennis balls. Near his little wooden equipment shack, he was talking to a couple of eager high school boys, and then the boys headed off. I parked the old dart alongside Carol William's little shack. He walked over with a long, outstretched arm and shook my hand, Nice timing, he said. I just finished up. How the hell are you, Stretch? Good, now that I'm catching some rays. You know how that is. Sure do, brother. 
It was true that the San Joaquin Valley could have days on end of miserable ground fog and could be cold as hell, but according to Carol William, it had been a pretty good winter so far. Only had to slosh the frost off my windshield twice, he said, and one of those times I used a Coors Light. Carol William was well-humored. A little older than I was, his curly black hair looked thinner than I had remembered. Gray showed at his sideburns now, and above his ears, otherwise he had that same lean, leathery look. His lanky brown body was all muscle, tendon, and veins. So who's my partner for this doubles gig, I asked him. You don't think I'd give you off to any of the other guys? Right on, bro, I said, and we stepped onto the near court to hit a few and continue our conversation across the net. He asked me what the untamed one was up to. The untamed one? You know, your buddy, Todd. Oh, yeah. He's in Acapulco playing an exhibition. Or maybe it's Guadalajara. I forget which. Sometimes he doesn't even know till he gets there. Carol Williams smiled. I could tell he was thinking about the old days. The days when he, too, would be out there in the badlands of tennis, chasing the dream and seeing the sights. Anyway, we call him Hammer now, on account of his carrying a hammer all the way to Montana. Naturally, I had to update Carol William on everything, and he told me about what had been happening in the valley and how there was almost a private takeover of the tennis at the park. Well, the park players raised hell, he said. There was stuff in the newspaper and on TV about it, and it wasn't very pretty. But in the end, the Fresno City Council vetoed the private takeover, thank God. He walked up close to the net and waited for me to come up. His face grew serious. The most important thing, he said, is that this place remained free. That's why we have so many people hanging out, and that's why this is one of the best places in the state to find a pickup game. We wouldn't want anything to happen to that. Carol Williams' leathery face wrinkled up. You could tell it hurt just thinking about it. Yeah, it was a close call, he said. Some people thought they could make some money, and the city thought they could pass off the maintenance. It was almost a done deal. Anyway, we've got a new parks and rec director now. I think he knows how things are supposed to work. So we should be okay for a while. I knew what Carol William was up against. I looked around at all the tennis players and at those just waiting to play, regular folks carrying tennis rackets, old-timers and peely-nosed juniors. Then I thought about Recreation Park in Long Beach and how pay-for-play had wrecked that scene. Recreation Park is now called the Billie Jean King Tennis Center, I said, somewhat out of the blue. Oh, yeah, he said after a brief pause. Long Beach, right? I hear it's not so good now. But, hey, you know where they've got a good thing going, up in Seattle, a place called Lower Woodland. They've got ten courts, and it's free. A buddy of mine lives up there. He claims it's the best place to find a pickup game in the country. We backed up on the court and got into it again. More and more, we focused on the mission at hand. We began to hit harder. So, what are the other teams like, I called out across the net. How hard is it going to be to win this thing? Most of the teaching pros around here are soft, Carol Williams said. So they're not much of a threat. But we did let a team in from Fresno State, and those guys are real crunchers. We may not beat them. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Everyone gets a hundred bucks. If you're a winner or a runner-up, you get two hundred. We kind of spread the wealth. It's more fun that way. 
I could handle that, first-rate doubles, and no pressure. There were six teams in, which meant five matches, probably five pro sets. Not a bad way to spend a Sunday afternoon, I thought. Sure beats the hell out of a rained-out day in Berkeley. Carol William had some Saturday errands to run, so we did a modest overall tune-up and called it quits. He gave me directions to his house and told me to head over when I was ready. His old lady would let me in. So I stayed on the court and loosened up my service motion for a while. Then I did some stretching exercises on a big wooden picnic table. I could see old Bob giving a lesson to a group of kids on the court near the backboard. He waved and I waved back. And I walked over for a closer look. His kids were learning the rudiments of the serve. With a racket on shoulder, they were practicing the toss. But they weren't tossing the ball at all, which I thought was pretty cool. They were simply moving the arm up through the toss extension, and at the top, when they finished, the ball was still held in their fingertips. Old Bob made them hold the ball straight up like that and look at it. He had them do it over and over. Next, they brought the ball up to that same high position, but this time they were allowed to open and close their fingers briefly at the last moment, so the ball jiggled slightly at the apex. One slender Mexican girl with flowing hair and head tilted up skyward looked beautiful as she strained to see the ball jiggle in her outstretched fingertips. After the lesson, old Bob told me that this miniature ball toss was the key to developing a good serve, since most problems arose when players released the toss early, too low in the motion. And of course, he was right, because even if it was only a few degrees off, a ball released down low would be way off target by the time it reached the contact zone. So I have them release high and toss tiny, he said. Then later we allow a taller toss. Originally from Spain, old Bob had silver hair and the slightest trace of a Spanish accent. The young Mexican girl I had admired was at his side. Maria's going to be a good one, he said, his voice worn hoarse from decades on the court. I'm going to be number one, she said proudly. I'll remember your name, I told her, so in about ten years when you're number one woman in the world, I can tell everybody I know you. I'm going to be number one, not number one woman, she said defiantly. I'm going to be the best in the world. Better than boys, too, I asked. Better than everybody. Just then an old cruiser pulled up and idled alongside the courts, with the relaxed sound of a seasoned tugboat. It was Maria's uncle. Old Bob gave her a swat on the butt, and she ran off. Through the car window, Maria flashed us the number one sign with her index finger, and then the car chugged its way slowly out of the park. She's a cocky one, old Bob said. Cocky is good, I offered. Anyway, she'll probably settle for number one woman when she's about 13, old Bob chuckled, yes, by that time, they usually understand the differences. No doubt, I said. But the public may not have a clue. I mean, it's not like golf. It's more like baseball or football, old Bob agreed. And then his worn voice came alive. A good 16-year-old boy will beat any woman in the world, he said. That's just the way it is. But old Bob told me people could learn a lot by watching the women on TV. They are not so strong, and they don't move as fast as the men, so you can see the strokes better. 
The sun arced low behind the trees in the southwest, casting great cool shadows on the park as old Bob and I walked to our separate cars. I felt suddenly damp and chilled. I was wearing my warm-ups, but I had broken a sweat hitting earlier, and that was the problem. So I changed into dry clothes as discreetly as possible inside the cramped quarters of the old dart, and then I headed out to find Carol Williams' house. Having to change a flat tire on the side of the road is a lot better, I suppose, than having to change it in the middle of the road. At least that's what I told myself, as the old dart limped over to the curb. I wondered if I would have preferred to have the flat tire in Berkeley, where somebody driving might recognize me. But that could prove embarrassing. I mean, after all, how many idiots are dumb enough to get a flat tire? Probably just the idiots dumb enough to be driving an old Dodge Dart, I thought. I got out and looked at the rear tire. It was totally down, well beyond the canister of emergency whipped cream I carried in the trunk. I stood there behind my car staring at the tire. I wondered how hard it would be to change it. I hadn't done that unsavory task in quite a while. Suddenly a vehicle pulled up right behind me, so close, in fact, that I could feel the heat coming off its engine. It was a recent model Ford pickup truck. The driver got out. Nice car, he said. An old slant six, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Then another pickup pulled up, this time in front of my old heap. A guy with a cowboy hat got out and came over. Check it out. It's an old slant six, the first guy told him. Yeah, an old slant six with a flat tire, the guy with the cowboy hat said. Let's get this puppy on the road. The two of them got out tools from the back of their trucks. They made stiff-jawed small talk as they worked on my car. I see you got a wench on the front of your truck, the one guy said. Yeah, the other guy replied matter-of-factly. I always like to keep a wench on the front of my truck. You never know when you need a good wench. The guy almost cracked a smile. It must have been an old joke, I figured. That bit about calling a wench a wench. In a matter of minutes, my old heap was jacked up and the spare I carried in the trunk was swapped out with the left rear tire. She's ready to roll, the first guy announced, and he tapped at the roof of my car like he was slapping an old friend on the back. I thanked them as earnestly as I could. You bet, the other guy said, tugging at the brim of his cowboy hat. He told me I might want to get a new set of tires when I got home. Them there's pretty durned bald, he said as he climbed back up into his pickup truck. Man, was I glad I didn't have that flat tire in Berkeley, I told Carol William when I got to his place. I mean, who would have stopped to help me out there? Carol William laughed. That's what Fresno's good for. It's a good town to have a flat tire in, and he slapped his knee. Then he turned to his wife. Isn't that right, Southerly? Southerly was a skinny thing who still clung to Carol William like an infatuated schoolgirl even after all those years. She was busy preparing dinner, but she paused momentarily to agree and blush a little. I'm telling you, Fresno's got that pioneer ethic, Carol Williams said, that help-your-neighbor spirit. And everybody here knows how to use tools. It's a great town for a flat tire. Carol Williams slapped his knee again. He couldn't get enough of it, so he elaborated from time to time during the course of our meal. Me, Southerly, and their 14-year-old daughter, we all listened patiently at the dinner table as, between mouthfuls, 
Carol William described the entire and complex meaning of life in Fresno and how it could be summed up by the changing of a flat tire. After dinner, his daughter excused herself to go do her homework, while we more imaginative elders sat around the crackling fireplace and pretended we were camping. We listened to Southerly play acoustic guitar. Her slender fingers plucked and strummed with intricate precision, and her once-meek voice grew husky and filled the warm room as she sang out Americana folk songs one after another. I had visions of Woody Guthrie and the freighters I rode with Hammer, and then my thoughts drifted to Bonnie. Or maybe it was her thoughts that drifted into mine. I felt warm inside and out. In his chair, Carol William was asleep now, and the guitar sang more gently. Southerly's voice had become a whisper, its lonely sweetness interrupted only by an occasional muffled crackle from the embers in the fireplace. It was a night I didn't want to end. I felt well-rested at Roding Park the next afternoon when the tournament was alive with players. A lot of locals had come out after church to watch the action. They lined the grassy edges of the courts, cheering for their favorite club pros. Carol William, in particular, had a good following from the park, so we had plenty of yahooing regulars to witness our memorable moments and assist us with calls we might otherwise have been too polite to make in our favor. Among the trees, bedraggled homeless types hung out and spied out on us tennis players with the same curious interest they gave to watching squirrels. Carol William and I played well together. In fact, in a lot of ways, it was easier to play doubles with him than it was to play with Hammer. Carol William was a solid percentage player. He was also left-handed, so his heavy slice serve curved naturally towards the opponent's backhand. He took care of business in a very methodical way, without too many surprises. On the other hand, Hammer was less predictable, more magical. So in a sense, I had to be more alert while playing with him. But when Hammer and I were on, there was nothing like it. We had knocked off more than a few tour-level teams over the years. Although Carol Williams' return was somewhat predictable, the fact that he was left-handed could be unnerving for the guy serving, since on the very next point the guy would have to shift gears and deal with me as a right-hander. And then there was Carol Williams' overhead, a left-handed smash that would suddenly appear full-blown from a place in the sky where you'd expect a right-hander to flick hopelessly at an impossible high backhand volley. I thought about the little mirror hammer used to conquer the left-handed Argentine, and I told Carol William about it. That's brilliant, he exclaimed. I think I'll use a mirror too next time I run into one of those left-handed sons of a bitch. I can't stand them either. But they make great partners, I said, and we high-fived each other. Between matches, we sat in the sunny grass on a blanket Southerly had brought. She was at a picnic table now, busily peeling oranges and shelling almonds for the players to eat. Having just lost in a close TB to a very rugged Fresno State duo, Carol William and I were heady from an overload of endorphins and tournament vibes that made us feel 20 years younger. That had been our only loss, and with one more match to go, I was close to a $200 paycheck. But I didn't care that much about the money. Not even the 100 I was already guaranteed. It just felt good to be catching the crisp Fresno rays and to be knocking the ball around with other guys who knew what they were doing. 
Carol William told me he had a really special player signed up for the tournament, but then something came up. Yeah, man, he said. I had Bob Mathias all lined up. Bob Mathias? You mean Bob Mathias, the Olympic hero? Yeah, man, the decathlon. Two gold medals in a row. My mind flashed back to the Bob Mathias story I read over and over again in grammar school. Orange Wheaties boxes with Bob Mathias on them flickered by at close range, blocking my view of the nearby trees. Yeah, Carol Williams said, Mathias has a place in the mountains near here. Grew up in Tulare, you know, just a little ways south. Carol William told me Matthias just pulled into the courts one day to eat a sandwich. He had come up Highway 99 from L.A. and was headed to his place in the mountains. I didn't know Bob Matthias played tennis, I said, somewhat in awe. He doesn't, Carol Williams said. But when I found out who he was just sitting there eating a sandwich, I had to put a racket in his hand and hit a few balls with the guy. And guess what? Even though he's only played a few times, the guy's damn good, especially for his age. He doesn't miss a ball. He's only the best athlete in the world, I remark. That's got to help. Anyway, Carol Williams said, Matthias and I hit every few months when he's passing through. Actually had him recruited to play this thing. But then he had to go to Colorado Springs to see about something at the Olympic Training Center, so I called you. I felt suddenly dejected. Oh, I see I'm not your first choice. You really wanted to play with the best athlete in the world. But then I thought about it and laughed. Hell, I'd probably play with the guy, too, if I got the chance. Can't say that I blame you, I told Carol William. And our hands raised simultaneously in a high-five salute. It was awesome hanging out with Carol William. And not only was he a formidable player but he was also a renowned instructor, quick to share subtle insights to the game. Actually, he hadn't always been into tennis. When he was younger, Carol William was a world-class pole vaulter. But one day he just quit. He liked the traveling, he said, and the skyward rush toward the bar. But he preferred his own vaulting stick, and he got tired of lugging that big thing around. He said he figured a tennis racket would be a lot easier to deal with, especially in airplanes. So Carol William might have started late, but because he was such a superb athlete, he became an open tennis player inside of three years. Of course, he had some outstanding mentors in his corner, national champions like Larry Hubner and Glenn Hippensteel, who used to play at Roding Park on a regular basis. Also, Butch Waltz and Chris Sylvan were coming up strong out of the juniors, and Carol William loved to punch it out with them until they went away to college and made names for themselves on the pro tour. Carol William told me he thought Fresno, being a country setting, was good training ground for athletes because, as he put it, the open spaces extend your horizons. He said it was a perspective thing, that it was easier to run long distances in Fresno, for example, since things were more spread out. I recalled how Hammer and I used to train at the horse track at Golden Gate Fields in Albany. Boy, did that giant track extend our horizons. A guy cleaning out the stalls told us each lap around was a mile. Not wanting to get shown up, or, more importantly, not wanting to get run over, we'd make sure there weren't any races scheduled when we went over there. And then we'd sneak in near the starting gate and prance down the track excitedly like two-legged stallions. But after the first turn, the novelty would wear off and we'd be stuck in the drudgery with our heads bent low like old workhorses. 
One thing, for sure, it was easier to count the number of laps we had done, after all. A five-mile run was just five times around the huge track. And then, a couple of days later, when we did our usual training at Berkeley High School, we'd go around that little track so fast, we almost got dizzy. Yeah, I told Carol William, I know what you mean about open spaces. They do extend your horizons. Fresno's good for that, he said. And face it, the weather is good for sports here, even if it does get a little hot. Man, did I enjoy the weather we were having that winter day. Just warm enough to play in shorts, but cool enough that you needed your sweats during the warm-up. I always had mine on between matches when we kicked back on Southerly's blanket and caught the crisp Fresno rays. When we got hungry, we ate almonds by the handful and washed them down with juicy slices of freshly peeled oranges. When we got stiff, we stretched. Actually, Carol William did Tai Chi, which looked cool as hell and seemed to have a lot in common with tennis movement. Then when we got bored, we pretended we were smart and talked about stuff like nuclear weapons and space and organic farming. But Carol William was still thinking about that flat tire. These Fresno people may be a little behind the times, he said, God-fearing and all that, but they're solid. There's a lot of pioneer ethic around here, that help-your-neighbor mentality that changed your tire. That's the stuff that built this country. Of course, there's lightweight city types, too, moving in all the time. Just go out to the north end of town and have a look. You wouldn't even know you were in Fresno out there with all those fancy new stores and office buildings. You can't stop progress, I offered. Progress is great, Carol Williams said, so long as it means cleaner air and water you can drink and getting the nukes out of space. Hell, when I was a kid, you could see the mountains and you could drink the water. Progress is what fertilizers and pesticides were all about, supposedly. Now look, we're sitting in the most productive agricultural valley in the nation and we can't even drink the water. Hell, half the time we're not even supposed to breathe the air. He gestured overhead. Wait till some of those nukes go off up there. See what that does to the air. He took a deep, satisfied whiff of the fresh air. But never mind right now, brother because we had a good rain a couple of days ago, and now things are downright tasty. So feel free to suck it in. He took another sensuous snort of the air, then pointed to the east, where the peaks in the distance were white. Look out there, brother. See? You can even see the mountains. You see that snow? That's what it's all about. That's our rivers, our water. But by the time it gets down here, you better be careful about drinking it. Who would have ever thunk it would come to this? Got to buy the stuff in stores now, just like it was milk. He pitched me a plastic store-bought bottle. Here, drink up, brother. Suddenly we were being called out for our final match, so I took the bottle of water with me. We went to the court near Carol Williams' little equipment shack and began to square off against a couple of guys from one of the clubs. On the court next to us, the Fresno State duo was busy clobbering their opponents. And next to them, four smooth-stroking club pros were warming up for their finale. Roding Park looked good in its cool greenery of tall trees and sprawling lawns. And now the tennis courts were dressed up with high-quality play. Spectators were gathered all around, but mostly near us, and two courts over where the four club pros were playing. I was into it, hot and heavy, confident, poised, moving well, when suddenly... Play was disrupted. 
It was a woman, an old bag lady coming noisily onto our tennis court with her shopping cart. She wheeled the cart across both service boxes and headed onto the next court. One of the Fresno State guys froze mid-swing as the old lady rolled her shopping cart onto the court with an air of indisputable superiority. And though the cart had no balls in it, it was brimful with various gadgets and doodads, probably all the latest teaching aids. It was obvious she was a pro. And though her tennis dress was outdated, she had that look, that leathery, wrinkled look from too many seasons in the sun. Gravity tugged at her chin with each step as she pushed the rattling cart across the court and mumbled about the old days, about Borg and Connors, Everett and King. It was obvious she was the real thing. Her eyes were squinty and distrustful. She was someone who had seen too many close calls, too many officials. Now, preferring the other side of the net, the old lady maneuvered her cart around a net post. She guided it deftly with years of familiarity. All she owned was in that rattling cage, not much. But hers was the victory of anonymity, the prize of animal instinct and unshakable confidence. Without a second thought, she rolled right through the last court where the four club pros were playing. And then she bounced onto the thick grass where the shopping cart moved in silence. A squirrel sat straight up and watched as the old lady continued her shortcut to the bathroom. That was Jay Parks reading Number One Woman. And don't you have to love these tennis players who enjoy that game so much and all that goes with it that they carry on a really healthy and active lifestyle right into old age. As for the elderly woman tennis player, who I guess didn't really care if she interrupted the men for a minute or two, well, good for her. May she serve many more aces. Folks, John Gruberg has many publishing credits, mostly about stories that have to do with tennis. We want to thank both of our authors tonight, Terry Phillips and John Gruberg. We enjoyed both of your stories, Terry and John, and we hope that you have some new ones for us in seasons to come. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you would like to rehear this program or any other program featured on Valley Writers Read, just go to kvpr.org and click on Archived Audio. Next week, our writer-reader will be Judy Ryan. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read.